Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Episode 5, Modularize This. A couple things came across my radar this week that you might find interesting as you're learning Rust. The first one, recommended by someone who also gave feedback on the show, is Roguelike in Rust, which is a tutorial walking through the process of building a text adventure using Rust. The second is a screencast by Intercom with Yehuda Katz, whom you might know from Ruby, Ember.js, or Rust itself, on using Rust as a replacement for C for performance-critical modules with Ruby code. Same ideas are readily applied to other languages like Python or Node.js or really anything where you have a high-level language that's interpreted or something like that and you want a performant compiled language to drop in in its place. I'll link both of those in the show notes. Now, into the show itself. We've spent the last few weeks talking a lot about functions, and for good reason. Functions are the basic tool we have for building programs. Today, we're going to turn our attention to a related set of ideas in Rust. Modules and quote-unquote crates, Rust's name for what you might know in other languages as namespaces and packages, respectively. Together, these two give us the tools we need to organize all those structures and enumerations and functions we've discussed so far. Why do we care? Well, because it is difficult to understand, to organize, to reuse, or to maintain, goodness, to maintain, any large set of code without these tools. So we'll take them in turn. But first, a word about APIs in general. An API, originally application programming interface, and still strictly that, but often used more generally just to describe the interface between libraries as well, so an application library interface, but I've never seen anyone refer to an ALI, is defined by the publicly available set of functions and data types and the way they're organized. You might have an HTTP API, in which case the publicly available functions, so to speak, would be endpoints that you could get or put or delete or any of these kinds of operations to at some URL. In the context of the kinds of things we're doing here, more likely these are going to be modules and functions. And the way we organize those things is incredibly important. Now that we have functions and structures and enumerations behind us, we have enough data to start thinking about our APIs and the way they're structured. We know all the basic blocks for defining them in Rust. We had to wait till now, though, because until you know how a given language allows you to organize that data, which is what we'll talk about for the rest of this episode, you can't really talk about an API. But you really can't talk about an API until you know what kinds of data types and functions and things like that that you have. We do need to talk about them, though, because the API for a given library or program matters, and it matters a lot. Let me give an example. A little over a week ago, I took a look at some code a friend was working on as he played with a Rust library. He was having a hard time getting the code to read nicely because he was ending up with multiply nested match statements. As we talked about a few weeks ago, you need to match whenever you're destructuring certain kinds of data, and in particular, when you're dealing with enumerated data types. As he and I both looked at it, we found some ways to work around that. Uh, For my part, I actually ended up writing a small Rust macro for the first time, and macros are cool, and we'll come back to macros in the future. But the conclusion we both came to was simple. The API itself wasn't very good. 
In this particular library, the problem was the way that option and result were used. Things were wrapped way too many times in one or the other or both, so that nearly every operation in the library required pattern matching or unwrapping those values. And this just made for a really painful experience trying to use this library. And this takes us to one of the things we should keep in mind. We're going to get into the weeds of how you structure APIs in Rust here in a minute. But first, a word on the notion of API design in general. Don't nest things deeply, not in modules, not in your complex data types, unless there is a very, very good reason to. As the Zen of Python puts it, flat is better than nested, and similarly, simple is better than complex. With Rust's module and type systems, we have powerful tools, and we can use those to model data in powerful ways. However, we still need to be careful in the way we apply those tools, because if we don't keep those maxims in mind, we'll end up in a messy spot. The fact that we can nest things 14 modules deep and wrap every operation in results inside of options inside of results inside of other options doesn't mean we should do that, and in fact, we probably shouldn't. Now, you might be thinking, well, but in my library, that complexity is necessary, and certainly I have thought similar in the past. Beyond the obvious question, though, and the obvious question, of course, is, is it really necessary or do you just think it's necessary? It is important to remember that one of the points of building a library is to hide the complexity of doing whatever your library does from the end user. And the end user is, first of all, yourself in most cases. To put it another way, our goal most of the time when we're building a library is to provide a useful abstraction. We want to make it so that end users don't have to deal with all the complexity. So the API we supply shouldn't expose them to every last complexity and detail of what we're doing behind the scenes. Rather, we should supply them with only the complexities necessary to do the task for which they're employing the library. And of course, sussing out exactly what that is is not a small task, but still, it's worth keeping in mind. One helpful approach is to take advantage of the difference between public and private modules and functions. It's likely true that you do need all that complexity within your library, but not necessarily outside of it. And so you can use all that complexity and all the kinds of nesting and other things you, you do sometimes need appropriately within your own library. But you don't necessarily need to expose all that complexity to the consumers of your API. If instead you can supply flatter, simpler data structures and functions and even namespaces to them, do it. It will make it far easier and far more pleasant to use your library. So how do we do that in Rust? Well, let's start at the highest level with packages, or as we like to call them in Rust, crates. Yes, the name is a bit quirky, but I like it, as I do some of the other quirky names in Rust. In any case, we get the name of Rust's package manager, Cargo, from this idea of crates, and these provide the highest level of abstraction for organizing Rust code, and they're the organizational level which correspond to, and indeed get built into, libraries or binaries in Rust. Having language-level packages, especially when combined with a hosting solution and a tool for managing them, is extremely handy. Of course, these kinds of tools and solutions can have their downsides. As anyone who's played with NPM and Node knows, dependency resolution can be painful. But at the same time, these tools are a major part of what has made the ecosystems around Python, Ruby, and Node so effective. And of course, this is not just a scripting language concern. Languages like Java and C Sharp have had their own package managers for quite some time. 
Regardless of what you think of Maven, clearly there is a need in the system for it. Having used them myself extensively, and spending a lot of time writing C and C++ as I do, I feel their absence very keenly. If there is no standard community solution, as there isn't in those cases, well, you're basically stuck just pulling in code from whatever place you find it on the interwebs, whether that is SourceForge, or Bitbucket, or GitHub, or GitLab, or wherever else the case may be, and that works but it has a lot of downsides and a lot of pain points. And because the C and C++ communities grew up long before package managers became the norm, well, even the few solutions that have been proposed there haven't really stuck. With Rust and Cargo, we are trying to learn from the best and worst parts of those existing ecosystems. And really, every generation of programming languages and tools has the chance to learn from preceding generations, hopefully to the good. So Ruby's packaging tools improved on Pythons in a variety of ways, and NPM with Node represents, if not a clean win, well, still a useful experiment at least. And Rust has the chance to take those lessons and apply them again, even if in the slightly different context of a statically compiled language. Many of the issues are the same, even if some of the details differ. So in Rust, we define packages, crates, using a cargo.toml file. Toml files are just a lightweight markup. They look a lot like the old INI format. They're pretty simple. And the format for them is specified in pretty great detail on crates.io, which is the hosting solution for them for Rust. The main thing is that we define the path to the main source file for a package and give it a name there in that cargo file. Helpfully, Running cargo new on the command line does this automatically, and presumably all the IDE tooling that's being built up right now will do likewise. For libraries we want to reuse or distribute, that root file is usually at source slash lib.rs, and for binaries, it's usually at source slash main.rs, and you should probably stick with those. Keeping close to community convention is helpful. That's what Cargo will generate for you when you run cargo new for either a binary or a library. When you build a crate, Cargo does something really nice. It creates a cargo.lock file. This is analogous to a bundler lock file or the output you would get from pip freeze. It specifies not just the basic dependencies you specified, after all, you include those in the cargo.toml file as well, but also the exact versions used when you made a build. And this is a big deal, because it makes it possible to have readily and straightforwardly reproducible builds. Anyone who's used NPM extensively knows just why that's a big deal. If you cannot readily reproduce your build, well, let's just say I've been bitten by problems with that more than once. Once we have those builds, once our crate passes all the tests we've written for it and so on, we can then upload it to crates.io and we can make it available for others to use in the same way if we so desire. We could also just leave them as dynamically or statically linkable library to use Rust with other programming languages. Again, the screencast I mentioned at the beginning of the show with Yehuda Katz has a great example of how you can do some pretty sophisticated things there. Now, that gives us the highest level view into what we're doing. However, within a given library, we want to structure things a bit more granularly. And the other major way we break down the functionality of a given library is through what are often called namespaces. As it turns out, naming things is one of the hard problems in software. And in all likelihood, as you and I struggle through different problems, we might come up with the same name for things. You can imagine, for example, having 
a parse function in a regular expression library or a compiler library or an HTTP request library or any number of other libraries. So what happens if I need to link two of those into my application? Which parse function am I referring to? How does the compiler know whether the particular form I'm using is A, valid, and B, linking to the correct function somewhere else that I've linked in? Well, the way we do this is with namespacing, and different languages approach this in different ways. In C++, these are managed through, well, namespaces. In Python, namespacing comes in modules and packages. In Rust, we handle this through modules. Modules in Rust are the basic structural tool we have for organizing discrete groups of code at something higher than a mere function level. And Rust modules are pretty similar in a lot of ways to modules in Python, if you're familiar with those, though with some important differences. And they're even fairly similar to namespaces in C++. They even adopt some of C++'s syntax. You define a module in Rust using the mod keyword. You can declare this either as a simple statement or using curly braces to include a block of other items. Just as with other items which make up the contents of a module, more on that in a moment, modules themselves can be declared public with the pub keyword, but are private by default. That is, you can define a bunch of modules for organizational and namespacing purposes, but you don't have to expose all of those either to other external modules or at the package slash crate level to other users. One difference from Python. In Rust, you can define multiple modules in a given file using curly braces to define a block which includes all the contents of that particular module. So for the show notes, I could actually have all of the show notes in one file, lib.rs, and then just have blocks for mod e001 and mod e002 and so on. However, as you can imagine, this would get unwieldy and not just for show notes. Any crate of any substantial size is going to be very difficult to parse once you get going on that. So you can also map modules to files, and the modules you declare with the mod keyword can just directly map to a file. For example, the show notes for this episode are declared as pub mod e006 in the lib.rs source file, which defines the root of the show notes package for this show. And the file itself is just named e006.rs, and it lives at the same level as lib.rs in the project structure. The Rust compiler is smart enough that it knows, oh, okay, you declared a module named e006, and there's a file right next to you named e006.md, that's the one I need. You can also use folders to organize your modules, somewhat like you can in Python, but with the big difference that files and folders don't define the module structure the way they do by default in Python. So, for example, if I wanted the show notes for each episode to live in a folder instead of just in a single file, I could do that by putting the show notes for the episode at the episode number slash mod.rs. In this case, they would be at e006 slash mod.rs and I would reference them the same way in lib.rs, pubmod e006. Now, that's how we declare modules. To use other modules, you use the use keyword, shocking, I know, and you specify the name of the module. If it is a nested module, you separate each name with a pair of colons. So the full path to this episode would be show underscore notes colon colon e006. Pretty simple. 
You can also reference specific items in a given module by referencing them in the same way, and if you want to reference more than one item within a module, you just supply the path up to that module as usual, and then wrap all the items you want to use with curly braces separated by commas. So if you wanted to include the various public functions in today's show notes, you would use show underscore notes colon colon e006 colon colon open curly brace, the name of some function, comma, another function, comma, yet another function, close curly brace, and you'd be off to the races. The use statement also lets you alias modules or items. So if you have some long module name that you're going to reuse frequently, you can give it a short name. Pythonistas might think of the common pattern of importing NumPy as NP so that you can just type two characters instead of five every time. One last thing we can do with modules, we can re-export them. That's really convenient for doing what I mentioned while we were talking about APIs. If you need to define the top-level interface to a given package in a relatively flat and simple way, but you also need to have some nesting and some complexity in your structure, well, you can do that. You can supply a nice public API to the package by re-exporting those deeply nested modules and their functions at the top level, or at least at a higher level, just to give people that friendly interface. And that right there is a good spot to wrap up for this week. Next time, we'll talk about testing, which follows up pretty closely with modules. Thanks to Chris Patty for sponsoring the show this month. You can see the list of other sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to sponsor the show yourself, you can set up recurring donations at patreon.com slash neurostation, or send a one-time donation at Venmo, Dwala, or Cash.me. There are links to all of those in the show notes. You can find those show notes with detailed code samples illustrating the ideas I've mentioned throughout the episode, as well as links to the things I mentioned early in the show at neurastation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter or app.net at neurastation, or you can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. And if you like the show, please give it a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find it. Finally, I'd love to hear from you on social media, in the thread for the show, on the Rust user forum at users.rustlang.org, or via email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.